Question 85 does too in a little bit, but it's a transition question that moves into what are the means that we use for escaping the condemnation that we're under because of our our law-breaking, because of our sin. But this is talking about things that are related directly to the commandments. So I thought it would be a good idea where the three questions that follow the Ten Commandments are all sort of connected with each other, that it would be good for me to just give a little summary of them and for us to confess those three questions, the answers to those three questions as we um, go into this section of the Catechism. So let's confess them now, beginning with question number 82. Question 82. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth break them in thought, word, and deed. Notice that it says, no mere man. Do you know why it says that? It says that because there's one man that is accepted, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ. He is an exception to the rule. He was able And he actually did keep all the commandments of God perfectly in this life. But he is not a mere man. So he is the son of God, the one who came from heaven. So that's why it says that to include Christ. Notice how it says since the fall. Well, why is that? Well, because before the fall, Adam and Eve were able to perfectly keep the commandments of God. It's only since the fall that we're not able to do so. Uh, If you ever want to look into the different states that man is, uh, that pertain to man before God, then you can look in our confession. It has a good summary of that on the section of sin and the fall. But then if you want to go beyond that, Thomas Boston wrote a a pretty massive um, work on that, the fourfold state of man. And he talks about the estate of innocency in which we were created, where we, we were capable of sinning, but we were also capable of continuing to, uh, to obey God. And then he talks about the estate of, um, of the fall of condemnation, where after we had fallen and we were unable, we were in bondage to sin, we were unable to do anything good. And then we have the state of grace is the third one, and that's where we are redeemed and we, we're then able to repent and to follow the Lord. And yet we're not able to, to be without sin until the, last, the final state for Christians, which is the state of glory. And that's when we're able to no longer sin again and we, we, we will not and cannot sin. So, uh, yeah, before the fall, though, Adam and Eve in the state of innocency they were able to perfectly keep the commandments of God. Notice how it says, in this life. So why is that? Because, well, because when we believers go to heaven, we will be able, as I was just saying, to keep all the commandments of God. And uh, notice finally that it, it not only says that we're not able to keep them, but it also says that we daily break them in thought, word, and deed, in all of those ways. And sometimes people might say, oh, well, I don't know about that. No, it's definitely true. We come short in everything that we do. Someone looking at question 82 might conclude that since we all sin every day, then that there's really no difference from one person to another, um, and one, no difference from one sin to another because, hey, we're sinning all the time. What's, what's the difference? Now, in a way, that's correct in this way. We're either under God's authority or we're not. And if we sin at all, then it shows that there's been a breach in our whole relationship with God. If you sin even in the most trivial way, then there is a fundamental breach in your relationship with him. You do not stand in a right relationship with God. And unless you're redeemed by Christ, then you'd perish. But at the same time, there are clearly some sins that are worse than other sins. The Bible is very frank about that. Jesus said, for example, to Pilate, the one that delivered you to me, the Jews that delivered, I mean, delivered me to you, has the greater sin, greater than Pilate. 
The Jews' sin for delivering him was worse than Pilate's sin. Um, they, they should have known better, the Jews, because they had the scriptures. And of course, it is obvious that it is worse to murder than it is just to think about murder or to hate someone. Jesus says if we hate someone, then we have violated the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. But um, it's worse if we actually take someone's life. So question 83 tells us that not all sins are the same. Some are more heinous or worse than others. So let's confess the answer to question 83. Uh, Question 83, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Now, by several aggravations, the catechism is talking about factors about sin that make it worse. Things that are related to a sin that make a sin, one sin worse than another. For example, if a 10-year-old, if you're a 10-year-old boy and you get angry at your friend and you punch him, that's sinful. But it's not nearly as sinful as if you get angry with your mother and you punch your mother. Why? It's the same thing. You punched one person, you punched another person because she's your mother. And you should show respect to your mother and you should honor your mother. Your 10-year-old buddy, yeah, you know, you hit him. It's not, it's not as big a deal. It's, not, it's, a, it's a sin, but it's not as big a sin. So the 10-year-old sin is aggravated because it is his mother whom he should honor. And there are other aggravations, many others that we could mention. That actually, the larger, larger catechism has a really good section on all the details of this. But for example, if the 10-year-old hit his friend for calling him a name... That would not be as bad if he hit him because he lost a ping pong game to him. In other words, he got aggravated because his friend beat him in ping pong and he went over and punched him. You know, that would be worse than if his friend did something nasty to him and he punched him for that reason. So sin has different levels of aggravations. If we do something on the same thing on Sunday, the same thing on Sunday is worse than if you do it on another day. Because it's a holy day that's to be set apart to the Lord. So it should be a, a, we should be especially careful on that day. So clearly, some sins are worse than others. But from hearing that, some people will immediately think, oh, so that means that there are some sins that are not very bad at all. And there are other ones that are very bad. See, we have so many shifts that we make. And we, we always are, our, our sinful minds are very active with these things. But that's not at all true either, is it? Question 84 straightens out that error. Let's confess it now. Question 84, what doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. Every sin, even the least sin, deserves God's wrath and curse because of what I mentioned before. No sin can happen unless there has been first a complete disruption of relationship of the relationship that we ought to have with God our creator sin is in its nature a repudiation and a rejection of God as God we will deal with this when we get to it but in in question 84 but we are also going to touch on this today as well as we look at how you know, uh, no one is without sin. And even those, any sins that are committed, they, we all deserve to, to perish on account of them. So today our focus is on question 82, whether any of us can perfectly obey God in this life. Our scripture reading associated with this is from Romans 3. We'll be looking at this passage uh, fairly closely today. This reading makes it very clear that we are all sinners. So listen now as I read it to you. Romans 3, beginning in verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Okay, he was just talking about the Jews and how that, you know, they they need to be saved too, as the Gentiles do. So he says, hey, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. 
But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? You know, are we Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So we show that the law cannot be broken. Like it, it, it can't be broken without penalty, that no one can be saved because we've all broken God's law. So we have to be justified in another way by faith in Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to this the reading of his word. So we're looking at this passage to answer the question about whether any of us can claim that we are without sin. And it's quite obvious from that, this reading that no one can. We'll be looking at what it says about that in a few minutes. But first, I want you to think about how important a question is being asked here. Can anyone perfectly keep the commandments of God? This is not a trivial question. Does anyone in this life perfectly keep the commandments? That's a huge, important question. Not a curious one just to raise a philosophical discussion. We're talking about sin here. This is not asking, can someone become so good at playing the piano that they'll never hit a wrong key? Or can someone do math so that they'll always get the right sum when they, when they do their math? No, we're talking about something that completely disrupts our relationship with our very creator, the most important relationship that we have, can anyone live without that which is a violation, a gross violation of that relationship? At the most basic level, sin is a denial of his authority as God. It cuts us loose from a right relationship with him and makes us defiled and fit only to be cast into the lake of fire and tormented forever. It is a complete unraveling of man, an abolition of all that man is meant to be. Not a slight shift in his course, but a complete missing of the way, the way in which he is to go. Not as a rule keeper per se, 
but as consciously under God as God, as one who lives under the authority of God as his maker. By sin, we have removed ourselves from that relationship. You can see in the passage that we read that the word righteousness is used in relation to sin. After reiterating in verse 9 that we're all under sin, the next verse says that there is none righteous, no, not one. In other words, sin has put us completely off the right way, off the right path. It has made us something alien to what we were created to be. We are disconnected from following the directives of the very one who created us. We're like a plane that no longer responds to its pilot. What use is such a plane? The engines can all be running fine. The lights and everything can be working fine. But if it doesn't respond to the direction of the pilot, then the plane is utterly worthless. If it goes wherever it wishes, the plane maybe full of people decides it's going to go like this and fly straight down into the ground or fly straight into a cliff, this sort of thing. It's cut loose. If it's cut loose from the pilot, then it's gone wrong. It's not right as a plane. It is not righteous, if I could use it that way. Having been cut off from God then, we're unable to perfectly respond to him. There has been a disconnect. And even when we're redeemed and repent and start to follow him again, the disruption is still there as long as we're in this world. And it is a serious disruption. We find that sin is always in the equation. We never fully conform to the ways of God. Like Paul says later in Romans 7, though I try to do good, I find that evil is always present with me. We are no longer righteous. There is always a failure when it comes to perfectly obeying the commandments of God. It is for this reason that such strong language is used in verses 10 through 18, in Romans 3, 10 through 18. Such absolute and such universal terms are used because we can never get it right as long as we're in this world. None of us can, no matter how hard we try. Look at how every one of us is said to be completely ruined by sin in our text. Verse 10 through 18 is a description of everyone without exception. We've already seen that verse 10 says there is none righteous. No, not one. We all have this wrong. We all have severed. We are all severed from God as far as obeying him as our creator. We are unrighteous. We're unright. Verse 11 says that not one of us understands. We always put our own twist to anything that God says, anything that's revealed about God. Before we fell, we did not do this. And it says that none seeks after God. We're diverted from him, not oriented toward him, not in the way that we're supposed to be. Even when the Holy Spirit draws us and we seek God, it's not seeking as it ought to be. It's very imperfect seeking, far from the pursuit of him that we ought to have. The seeking of the glorious God that we were made to have relationship with, we should be seeking him far more than we do. Verse 12 opens by speaking of the breach, the disconnect that we have, that we all have. It says they are all turned aside. Even when we come to Jesus There is still this matter of us constantly turning to our own way as if God were not God. And the result of that is that we're not profitable, as verse 12 says. We do not accomplish the purposes that God has for us as human beings to bring glory to him as his image. We're not profiting him and we do not profit each other. If you do not If you do not fear God, then you do not honor him. A profitable person would promote his glory and his beauty as his image bearer. But we as image bearers keep casting up distortions and keep on misrepresenting him so that we're not profitable in the world. It says that none of us is good. No, not one. We're something else. 
something other than good. So far, he has been speaking about our condition in rather abstract terms, that we're not righteous, that we do not understand or seek God, that we're unprofitable. We're, we're like the people of Malachi when we hear of those general terms and say, what, us? How have we done that? What do you mean? With the general things, we have to have something concrete, don't we? How are we unrighteous? How are we not good? And he says, okay. Verse 13 through 17, he moves to some concrete examples. He uses the strongest terms to describe the wicked, our wicked speech in verse 13 and 14. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit, telling lies. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I've often told you that if you're having trouble remembering that you're a sinner, just evaluate your words for a little while. It won't take long. Uh, what do you say? Our throats are like a tomb, you know, with stench of death, of dead men's bones, and putrefying bones is found, noxious air comes out of our mouth when we talk. What deceit comes out of you as you boast about yourself and fail to speak of your glorious maker and his wonderful works? What poison comes out, poison that confirms others in their sin by approving of their sin because you want to have freedom for, the own, for your own sins or that stirs up strife among your neighbors that gossips, that misdirects children and guides them in the wrong way. There is cursing and bitterness, complaining and speaking in ways that do not lead people toward God, but lead people away from God. And in verse 15 through 17, he moves from a description of our speech to a description of our actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. We who are made to love each other instead harm each other. We do things that are destructive. It's not that we never lend a helping hand. We do. But because of our disconnect with God, it's all spoiled because this is not all that we do. <laughs> we're not out loving people. We're out also trying to get ahead, trying to twist, trying to... We're harming others because of our selfishness. We attack each other. We take advantage of each other. We destroy and disrupt relationships, even with our own spouse, because of our behavior, the things that we do or don't do with our parents. Where love is supposed to be, there is something else. And that's because we're severed from God, our maker. Paul closes out this list with a summary statement that we do not fear God. That's the root. That's the root of the whole matter. But what does it mean? It means that we do not regard Him as the glorious God that He is. It means that God does not matter very much to us. Not even half as much, not nearly as much as He ought to matter. You know what you're like when something really matters to you. You're energized by whatever is related to that thing. You're, you're, you're stirred up. Like if you know, a young person's entering into a new relationship with someone maybe that they're interested in getting married, they're all eager to go and talk to them. They find ways to, to do things for them. I remember hearing about my father when he was interested in my mother and she was working in a store and he kept going over to the store to run errands, you know, for have to go and buy a... Uh, I need to buy a bucket, you know, or whatever. He'd go over to the store all the time so he could see my mom. And, uh, you know, he had, a, he had a real interest in it because he said, this will make a big difference in my life. The person that I want to spend time, you know, the rest of my life with. It will make a big, it's, it's an important thing. There, there was, the, that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about fear. Something that if I have it or don't have it, it's going to make a big difference in my life. A huge difference. So you're energized to live in relation with that thing. If you do not fear God, it means that you're indifferent about God and you're standing with him. It means that you're indifferent about obeying him or not obeying him. It won't make much difference. I don't care. It's not important. You're indifferent about worshiping him, serving him, proclaiming him, pleasing him. You may say that this is important to you, and I hope it is. I hope I hope that 
God is important to you, that you do fear God. But the problem is, God is not nearly as important to you as he ought to be. And that's where sin comes in. So that rounds out Paul's description of the sinful condition that we're all in. This description makes it clear that not one of us can perfectly keep the commandments of God in this life. He has not merely said that there is none righteous, but he has said, no, not one. Added that. And he has added to that, all have turned aside. Not some, but all have turned aside. But someone might say, but what about those that he has redeemed? Are they not said to be a new, new creations in Jesus Christ? Well, they are. Are they not said to be born again and given a new heart that delights to do the will of God? Yes, yes, that's true. Have they not been thoroughly renewed so that they put off the old man and put on the new man so that they can walk in newness of life? Yes, that's all true. Does God not call them his people and profess to be their God? Yes, that's true too. But look, Paul stresses that covenant people are also guilty. He stresses this because we need to know this. In verse 19, he refers to them as those who are under the law. That's how the covenant people were designated at that time before we were uh, before Jesus Christ came. So you will remember that the commandments of God were not given to the nations. The law of God, the instruction of God through Moses and the commandments themselves were given to the people that God had redeemed. After he redeemed them, he gave them his law. God does not give his commandments to us so that we can be redeemed, but he gives them to us especially when we have already been redeemed. He gives us his commandments because we need to know how we are to live as his people. He gives them to us to show us what we need to be restored to. Verse 19 tells us that they are spoken to his covenant people. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, the covenant people of God. The very form of the commandments is God telling us to stop doing things. And who does he say this to? To his covenant people. Not the people out there doing bad things, they need to be told to stop. But to us covenant people need to be told to stop doing what? things. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery or steal. He is saying these things to his people, not because other people commit those sins, and he's telling us that, but because we commit those sins. And surely we've seen that as we've studied the Ten Commandments. I mean, I've shown you how that, you know, if you're not putting a full day at work, putting putting a full energy into your work, then um, you, there's, there's a kind of stealing going on there. Um, he's saying these things then to us. If God has to address the people that he has redeemed about these things, what does that say about everybody else, about those who are not his people? It shows that we are all guilty. Look at the whole verse, the whole of verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, the covenant people, that every mouth may be stopped. So their mouth and everybody else's mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. They may be recognized as guilty. They may see that they're guilty. That's the point. Everybody's guilty. If Even God's redeemed people have to be called out on these sins. And everybody else must be guilty of sin as well. The result of being God's people and having his law is not that you are made righteous by your deeds, your own deeds. If you were righteous, you would not need these commandments. You would not need to be told to honor your parents if you are honored. The the law is made for Sinful people, that's why it was given, because there's sin. Sometimes God's people suppose that having the law, that that in itself makes them righteous. We think that because we know what God commands and other people don't, that makes us better. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1 and 2, before, right, just before this section. It's actually the opposite. 
The law actually exposes your sin and your guilt. It shows how wrong you are and it makes you worse because when you know what you ought to do and you do something different, then it's a more direct violation against God. We who have the law should be the most humble people of all because we know that we don't do what God requires. We're told what he requires and we know better than anyone that we come short. We of all people should know that. We know that we are not justified or made righteous by our keeping of the law because we have the law and it shows us how short we come. That's what verse 20 is getting at. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Notice how strong this statement is. No flesh will be justified in his sight. The redeemed people will not be justified by keeping the law. The law exposes the reality of our failure to be righteous by our own deeds. It doesn't enable us to be righteous. It shows how far short we come. Law is never meant to be a way to be justified. It's the very thing that shows us that we need to be justified. What we need to do is turn to Christ because we all come short. Neither is it as if after we are redeemed, then we will be able to be justified by the law. In other words, we come to be redeemed. Jesus does change us. He does give us a new heart, a new life, a new walk. And so now we can perfectly keep the command. No, no. The righteousness that God has for his people is called a righteousness that is apart from the law. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So Jesus doesn't save us so that now we can keep the law. It's true that he helps us and eventually we will when we go to glory, but not in this life. We're talking about in this life. No, it's the righteousness is apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law itself shows us that righteousness by the deeds of the law is impossible. And it teaches us that there is a righteousness revealed apart from the law that God provides with all the ceremonies and sacrifices. God was testifying to cleansing that he would bring through his grace. Verse 22 tells us what this righteousness apart from the law is, this way of being right with God, not by your own obedience. What is it by? Verse 22, the righteousness apart from the law, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. It is righteousness that comes by depending on Jesus Christ, by believing in him as the one who provides righteousness for his people. We do not depend on our own deeds, but on his redemptive work. Verse 25 explains that God set him forth as a propitiation through his blood. A propitiation is something that appeases the wrath of an offended judge. And the blood of Jesus Christ is that propitiation. The law shows us that the wages of sin is death and that Jesus is the one who came and died to pay the full penalty of our sins. So God's people are not redeemed by keeping the law. They are redeemed by trusting in Jesus, who not only kept the law in their stead, but also turned God's wrath away by shedding his blood on the cross. He is the righteousness of God apart from the keeping of the law. So there's a way of keeping, there's a way of keeping the law. Can't be righteous that way. There's a way of faith in Jesus Christ. We can be righteous in that way. With, this, with teaching like this, it becomes obvious that any doctrine that suggests that anyone but Jesus can keep the law is a false doctrine. There is that false teaching that is in some Christian circles of a second blessing, an alleged experience by which a Christian can be freed from sin in this life. This is found in some Wesleyan and holiness churches. Some Pentecostal churches teach this as well. But Paul is showing that in this life, there is none righteous, no, not one. The relationship with God is broken. And if we understand the real meaning of the law, then it constantly reveals that reality. If we understand the law in a superficial way, yeah, maybe you can keep the commandment. I, I've never killed anyone. Yeah, I've never, I've never killed anyone. I've never, I've never murdered anyone. So yeah, I've kept that commandment. No, but not when we understand it the way it's meant to be understood before God. 
Even though we're born again and we try to obey, we find, as Paul says in Romans 7, that though I try to do good, evil is always present with me. And then there is the false teaching of the Roman church, that there are some who reach a place of perfection, and not only that, but who even do works of supererogation. That is, they are persons like the Virgin Mary, who has claimed have done more than what God requires of them. And they're able to lay up their extra good works in the treasury of merits so that people who don't have enough good can pray and tap into the treasury of merits and get those credited to their own account. These saints have merit that is available for other sinners because they've got an excess that they didn't need. This is completely alien to what Paul is saying about redeemed people. Having the law, we know more about sin than anyone else. And we're completely deluded if we think that somehow we can do more than is required. By the deeds of the law, we're not even righteous. No one can be justified, much less can anyone do more than what is required. We see how guilty we are by the law, not how much extra we've done. (laughs) That's not what the law shows us. This does not mean, though, that Christians cannot become what Scripture calls blameless. We can. Or that our works do not please the Lord, our good works. They can and they do. The Lord himself describes Job as a blameless man that, uh, he, that he did things that God was pleased with. And Scripture tells us that Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were blameless people. We're told that if anyone wants to be an elder in the church, then they need to be blameless. Timothy and Titus tell us that. But being blameless does not mean without sin. It rather means that you're living a consistent Christian life, a life in which you're keeping all of God's commandments. Not perfectly, but your your obedience is always going to be tainted with sin, but it's still obedience maintained across the path. Okay, across the board, you're keeping, like, like you're, you're observing the commandments even though you come short in that observance. You're not living in sin, but you're living in obedience. You're not living in defiance. You're coming short. And, and when these persons who are blameless rebel, they repent and make it right. So they don't go on in their sin. Like maybe they get unjustly angry and then they come and ask for forgiveness and and reconcile with the one they were unjustly angry toward. This teaching is then that all, this teaching that all have sinned is very helpful. And now I want to turn and look at some of the ways that it's helpful for us to to hold it to this doctrine. I mean, does this really make a difference in our life? It absolutely does. So let's look at the benefits of accepting the reality that we do not perfectly keep the commandments of God. So saying, what, us? Like they did in Malachi. Okay, first, accepting this reality enables us to have a better grasp of the holiness of God. Anyone who thinks their obedience is perfect or that the obedience of other people is perfect, that person does not realize how holy God is. When Isaiah saw God's glory, as he writes in Isaiah 6, he was especially impressed with one particular attribute of God, holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That was what he saw. And all who have caught a glimpse of the holiness of God realize that they are completely unworthy to come before him. Even Isaiah who was known to be one of the holiest of all the prophets, the Jews counted him to be one of the holiest of all the prophets, he cried out when he saw the glory and majesty of God's holiness, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We need to meditate on the glorious holiness of God. We need to cry out to him to show us his glory to reveal to us his perfections and his purity. But if we're trying to keep up pretensions that we are without sin, then we're not going to see the glory of God's holiness unless he breaks into our delusions and 
reveals himself. We are not, we're not disposed to see the glory and majesty and purity of God. <clears throat> Secondly, facing the reality that we do not perfectly keep God's commandments enables us to pre- appreciate the perfections of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he walked on the earth, he was so different, entirely different than any of us. The communion that he had with his father, he maintained a sweet and full communion with his father at all times. The love that he had for God and for us, there's nothing like that love. The holy words of wisdom that he spoke, everything about Jesus was unique. His words are are amazing. What a sad thing it is if you think that, you know, you're you're pretty much like Jesus now. You're pretty pretty much, you know, I mean, he had the power to do miracles, so there's some differences, but, eh, you know, I'm right about the same level now. I've been walking with Christ and, you know, whatever. You're deluded if you think that. Jesus was free from all the impurity, all of the coldness of heart that so often characterizes you and every other believer. When you worship, the lame sacrifices that we bring to God in worship, we don't, we don't adore him, we don't magnify him, we don't behold his, his glory. Jesus was free of all that. Third, facing the reality that we do not perfectly keep the commandments of God enables us to see how much we need Jesus to be our Savior. If you are judged for the way that you performed in worship today, did you go to heaven or hell? You go to hell. Hell. What we saw before about, the righteous, about righteousness is perfectly true. It is not by our deeds that we are justified. It's by trusting in Jesus Christ. That was true when you first came to him, and that is also true today. If you are to be judged on what you have done in the last hour, in the last five minutes, you would not be able to stand before God. But if Jesus is your righteousness then all is well. You are completely forgiven because he died for his people's sins. In him, you are completely acceptable to God because you're evaluated on what he is and on what he has done on his righteousness instead of what you are and what you have done on your righteousness. He definitely delights in the new life that he produces in us the love and obedience that we bring forth. We have seen that in the Song of Solomon, haven't we? That he does delight in the fruit that that he's cultivating in us. But you should never think that you have any grounds for being justified by the fruit that has been produced through his redemptive work in you. No, it's still, you still come short and you need Jesus for forgiveness constantly if we walk in the light as he is in the light the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all the sin walking in the light is not walking without sin if it was you wouldn't need to be cleansed walking in the light is walking in the light of the truth of who god is and who you are and when you do that when you face the truth and the reality of your need of christ the blood of jesus cleanses you from sin if you deny the light if you walk in the darkness and say that you haven't sinned How can you be forgiven? You don't need a Savior then. You don't look to Jesus. You don't rest in Him. Fourth, facing the reality that you do not perfectly keep God's commandments leaves you room to grow. If you refuse to face what you really are and how much you need to grow, you will not be seeking to make the changes that you need to make. You know, if a guy's on a a, a track team and, oh, I can run faster than anybody. And he, he doesn't think he needs to change. And he's deluded about that. He can't run faster than anybody. He's going to go and be disappointed when the, when the match comes, isn't he? You'll not be able, it, you will not be looking to the Holy Spirit to sanctify you if you think that, you know, everything's okay. You think you don't need to be transformed. You're deluding yourself that you don't need to be changed. In fact, you will find that the Spirit resists you because the Bible tells us that God resists the proud. And you're proud in that case, and he's going to break you. Paul describes himself as always striving for more in his Christian walk. He greatly rejoiced in what God had done in his life. He even said that he had done more than any of the other apostles by the grace of God. 
And he, he was boasting in the grace of God about how much God had worked in his life. But he also said, I have not attained. I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He did not let up because he knew he still had a long way to go. You think about Moses too. You know, he had seen God face to face like no one else had and had communed with God on the mountain and everything. And he still cried out and said, show me your glory. He wanted to see more. He wanted to grow further. Fifth, facing the reality that you do not perfectly keep the commandments of God keeps you from a proud, censorious spirit that condemns others unjustly. If you see what a sinner you are, then you'll not look with shock or horror at the sins of others. You will be like the Pharisees who, you won't be like the Pharisees who went around criticizing other people because they didn't keep some of their trivial law code that they had imposed on everyone, tiny infractions that they had set up. There is little worse than a self-righteous shepherd, such as a parent that we looked at when we studied about covetousness, who looks at their child and says, how could you do that? I can't believe that you would do something like that. Why would you not be able to believe that someone would sin? Really, I mean, perhaps you should look in the mirror and see all the ways that you're coming short. Not that your child not, ought not to be corrected. And not that there are times when, if it's a particularly egregious sin, you might say something that's nearly like that. But the attitude is very different if you come to your child as a fellow sinner who comes short of God and who needs grace, or if you come to them as someone who's righteous, as there to condemn them, as if you don't need a, a redeemer. You're to come broken over your own sin and to lead your disobedient child to approach our gracious Savior for the help that you are finding to lead them to find that grace in Him. If, if you come as one who does not need the Savior's help, you come as a deceiver, and you will not be of much help to your child except to lead them into hypocrisy. Self-righteousness will neg negatively impact all your relationships. You will not be able to witness effectively to other people because you're coming to them as our, I'm righteous by my deeds approach instead of I'm righteous through Jesus Christ. You can't admonish your brothers. You can't encourage your brothers and sisters when they sin. You will come off not with a message of grace and thanksgiving for a strong Savior who delivers us from our sins, but you'll come off with a call of works. It will be discouraging, rather it will bring discouragement rather than hope to your neighbor because they cannot be justified by the works of the law any more than you can. And finally, facing the reality that you do not perfectly keep the commandments of God will enable you to yearn more for heaven. One of the greatest things about heaven is that when we get there, we will be done with sin. When our Lord brings us to dwell in his presence, he will perfect our spirits so that sin will be fully eradicated. Then we will be without sin, not until then. We would be miserable, brothers and sisters, if we were to come before the Lord apart from this transformation with the sin that we have in us right now, still in us, still part of us, we'd be miserable in God's presence. It is God's promise that when we see Jesus, we shall be like him. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. How depressing it would be, too, if the level of perfection that, that you reach in this life, that that was all that you would attain? Just however much you grow in this life, and that was it. You're stuck with that for the rest of eternity. I mean, what if you had to live for all eternity with people who have only made as much progress as even the very best Christians in this present world have? That would not be a pleasant prospect. I would not want to live there forever. What if none of us could arise beyond the best of what we have now? What a dismal prospect that would be. What kind of heaven would that be? It would be no heaven at all. Even if all our other trials were taken away, and they really wouldn't be because they go hand in hand with sin, but even if they were taken away, it wouldn't be paradise. In heaven, we will have the very impulse of sin completely eradicated. 
There will be pure love. There will be pure holiness, pure obedience and devotion to God. That's alien to us, isn't it? I mean, we, we can hardly conceive of that. We're so far from it now. We're categorically missing the mark. We need to be brought into an entirely different level of holiness. We need an obedience that is categorically different than any obedience that we have ever experienced or that any of the saints have ever experienced. But praise God, if you're in Christ, he has begun a good work in you. You are in a different category than you were even now by by virtue of your conversion. But there is another categorical change that will come, not, not come until heaven. And what a glorious day that will be. Don't sell yourself short. Don't think that this is all that there is. You need the blood of Christ to cleanse you from your sin as long as you live because there is none righteous, no, not one. But if you're in him now, you will be like him when you see him. There will be a huge change that will be so marvelous. What a beautiful thing it will be. Please stand and let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you with gladness and thanksgiving that you are our God and our Redeemer who have given us hope because now there is a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that is not based upon our own works, which are futile, but a righteousness that is based upon Jesus Christ and his work, his work for us, his work, his life, his obedience, his righteousness, and the blood that he shed on the cross to atone for our sins. And Father, that gives us great encouragement and hope. We thank you that Jesus has also promised that he will change us, that he will transform us, that when we see him, we will be like him, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of your son. We pray, Lord, that we would not put up pretenses in this life, for it will hinder us greatly in our walk with you and in our our fellowship and communion with other Christians. We pray that we would always be mindful of the fact that we stand by your grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, that we need that propitiation and that cleansing. Father, thank you that it is available to us. How blessed is the man whose trespass is forgiven. We thank you, Lord, for this. Help us then to to live and walk in the light and not in the darkness of delusion and deception, of self-righteous deception. It's such a twist. It's such a, a, a wrong way of thinking. Father, we know that sin is a big deal. And yet, Lord, we see that we who would desire to do good find that evil is present with us. So we look to you, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace with thanksgiving that you will do as you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Receive then his blessing. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all, amen.